0: This morning, I was speaking to you about the hope of our calling, hope we have through faith in Christ. And I realised afterwards uh, lots of you young people here were so happy that you're here, hearing God's word. And I thought to myself, what does that mean to you? You're... Many of you in your teenage years, and all the talk of the last few months has been getting results, hasn't it? Been for I mean for many of you. And are you going to this? Is it sixth form? Are you going to this college? What's going to happen? And the focus has been on this life. And you're only less than 20, and you expect. 70 years, do you? 80, maybe? And that's an awful long way away. So I want to tell you that that message was for you in particular. Because we who are my age, we are forced to think that way. If I may put it this way, whether we like it or not, Uh, when I reached 70 that three score and ten, then my work in Kenya basically was over. And all I could say was, I've either done it well, or I've not done it well. There's no going back, is there? Thank the Lord I didn't want to. I believe he's been very gracious. But there are two things I want to remind you young people about. Number one is the Lord Jesus may return at any moment. Just read Matthew 24 at the end. You'll see that repeated over and over again. Read the parable, chapter 25, of the ten wise and foolish virgins. The bridegroom came when they were not expecting. Read the next one about the parable of the talents. The master returned when they were not expecting. And so don't say, I've got 70 years. How do you know you've got 70 years? But may I say to you, 70 years is awful short. It goes just like that. And while, if you have, you've been seeking to gain this world, the Word of God comes to you now, doesn't it? What will it benefit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? No matter what you achieve and gain in this life, and I hope you achieve much for the Lord in this life, but no matter how little or much you do, A day is coming when you'll leave it all behind. And then there's an eternity in front of you. And that speaks to the youngest of you as well as to the oldest. And maybe you might say, but that's awfully hard for me. It's hard for us all. So what I have to tell you this evening is to encourage you from God's Word is how you can do that how you can have that hope of your calling and that thought that i'm the precious possession of god through faith in christ that uh, guarantees that glory for me how can i keep going look at verse 19 and following ok ephesians 1:19 this is the third request of paul about knowledge He wants them to know, in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. We live in a day of the Christian church when there's great emphasis on receiving power. There are whole conferences and uh, whole brand of literature telling us that our problem is we don't have power. We need what Jesus said to the Apostles in acts one eight and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, and they tell us, just look around, look, look at our church. there are more empty seats than there are seats occupied this evening. The church is so ineffective, churches are closing all over the land, aren 't they becoming. Uh, warehouses and garages and um, uh, places where other religions go and worship. And people tell us it's not enough to be a Christian. That's good. You start by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sins, great, but that's only step number one. You've got to be filled with the Spirit. You know the teaching. You've got to be filled with the Spirit. Signified by something miraculous, something powerful. Like speaking in tongues. But you know, that's not what the Bible teaches. Listen carefully. The Bible teaches that those who don't have spiritual power are not Christians at all. The working of God's power is what defines a Christian. And that's what you need to know. That's what Paul writes here in verse 19. We need to appreciate what's happened to us as Christians and we need to rely on what God has done so that we've reached the final goal of the reason why we put our hope in Christ. Again, this is so glorious. All these three things are mind-boggling. We wonder the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. I believe. You mean that's true of me? Yes. And I hope to explain that to you this evening. Because if you don't know that you have spiritual power then no wonder you've got no confidence or boldness. The two go together. Some of you are going on the church what do you call it? The camp. Aren't you? And you're you're tenting and I don't know what else you're doing but uh, you've got to get everything ready, haven't you? Number one, your car's got to be ready. Uh, You've got to make sure uh, it's going to start and it's going to get you the 40 miles, however far you're going. Um, But you've got all the equipment, you've got your tents and beddings and, you know, all the other stuff that you need. And uh, to have confidence as you get in the car and go, that you're going to enjoy a nice few days. All those things need to be ready. You need to know you've got the resources. Do you have the resources for the Christian life? As a believer in Christ, absolutely you do. And we need to know it. So, first thing this evening, you need to know that God's power towards believers is infinitely great. The power of God towards those who believe is infinitely great. Paul, once again, this is characteristic of Paul, he cannot find enough words. He piles one word upon another. He talks about God's power it has a greatness. But it's got an immeasurable or inexhaustible or unlimited greatness. There used to be supermarkets in the old days. And then I think there became uh, mega supermarkets and then hyper mega Supermarkets, I'm not sure if that's quite the truth, but you get the point. And actually, both those words, hyper and mega, are used right here in the word immeasurable. So it's just seeking to express something so great you multiply words to describe it. And it's towards us as believers. In other words, it's for our benefit. The goal is to help us. And so then, it's absolutely important to know that you're a believer, isn't it? Just as this morning, you need to be sure that you've been called through the gospel, from the world to Christ. You must make sure that you're a believer. Not just a person who says, I believe, and then goes on his way. But that faith which is Have you ever heard of that illustration of faith? Where somebody was at the Niagara Falls in, in Canada, or America could be, and there they were watching somebody take a wheelbarrow on a rope over the falls from one side or the other. And as they watched, they found somebody who was willing to sit in the wheelbarrow and be taken across. So that person watched, and then uh, this person was asked, do you believe that I could take you across? Oh, You can imagine if that was asked to you, you would say, well, I believe, but not me. Well, of course, then you don't believe, do you? Believing means you are willing to get into the wheelbarrow And be wheeled across if you're brave enough. But that's what faith is it's trust. It's not just saying yes and walking away, it's saying yes and putting your life in the hands of Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, you do whatever you want with me. I'm yours. I'll go where you go, I'll do what you want me to do. It's absolutely vital this evening you are sure that you're a believer because this only applies to believers so we ask the question why is such power needed you say but becoming a Christian is a simple thing isn't it all you do is say I trust Jesus and I'm a Christian that's actually not really the truth So let's look into it. Let's first of all look at God's power towards us as we become Christians in our conversion. What were you like before you became a Christian? Go into the emergency room of the hospital and there see... A crash victim. And the doctors are frantically working. You know, you see it, don't you, on the, on the TV, how they're rushing around, barking out orders. There's not a second to waste trying to save the life. And then they find they can't save the life. And they walk away and put a sheet over the body. Dead. That's what we're like before we become Christians. There's no point in working on us anymore because as a dead person, we have no life. We have no ability to hear, to understand, or to respond to the gospel. We've got this in chapter 2 of Ephesians, just below where we're reading. He says of these Ephesians, once you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were living in the world, you were very active, but spiritually speaking, you were completely dead, unable to do anything to benefit yourself spiritually. And so Jesus said in John 6, no one can, no one has the ability to come to me. That means to believe in me, unless the Father who sent me Draws him. Prophet Jeremiah says to a sinful people, can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change the colour of his skin? If that were possible, which it isn't, then you who are accustomed to do evil could do good, but you can't. There was a religious lady called Lydia. So she was disposed towards the word of God. She was with others. We don't know how many there were by the riverside in Philippi in Acts 16. But she was hearing Paul speak, along with the others. But it's only said of her that the Lord opened her heart. Before that time, her heart was closed. So when the word would come, when the heart's closed, it just crashes off, doesn't it? It doesn't enter in. That's how we are by nature. So my friend, it's, if you're thinking that you can become a Christian whenever you choose, I'm afraid you're wrong. You have no will to come to Christ. That's why you've not come to Christ. You're like Lazarus in the grave. When Jesus stands outside, he's told, but he's dead. He's been dead four days. The body's already rotting. Why are you asking the stone to be rolled away? But Jesus is able to speak. And that voice wakes the dead. And he comes out. But the death must first of all be overcome. And life must come. So, when the Bible speaks of someone coming a Christian, it uses at least three pictures It's a picture of birth. Did you give birth to yourself? No. (laughs) It talks of resurrection. Did Lazarus raise himself? No. And it talks of creation. Did this earth make itself? Well, people are trying to convince us that somehow that happened, but we know it didn't happen. Uh, It was made by, obviously, the Creator. So this is something that we cannot do. It takes the immeasurably great power of God to make a Christian. And if you're a believer, then if you're a Christian, whether you've had some incredible experience or not, God has raised you from the dead. His great power has been made known to you. Well, what about the Christian life? Okay, you become a believer then. You're now seeking to walk on the Christian road. What is the road? What are the sort of guideposts? Well, it's the commandments of God, isn't it? We, we don't get saved by keeping the commandments but we are saved in order that we might keep the commandments. But how can you do it? What an impossible task. Not just to keep them externally, so you say, oh, I've never killed anybody. Have you killed somebody with your mouth? Have you said, fool? Have you had hatred in your heart? Like Cain had towards his brother. That's counted as murder. And we'd all have to raise our hand and say, guilty. Our righteousness has got to be far greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. But think of the enemies we have as believers. There's the world outside there. How powerful the world is. Why do so many people have the same iPhone or the same handbag or the same shoes, n- n- Nike shoes that you have to wear. Why? Because people are following the world. It's, it's pressurising. And there it is, everywhere you go, the adverts, the, the things that people are talking. Behind it, of course, is what we call the world. We're told, don't love the world. That's hard, it's hard for you. You young people, it's so, so attractive. And then there's the second enemy. There's what's called the flesh within, the indwelling sin. As we saw this morning, we're not yet made perfect yet. There's a struggle. In fact, once you become a Christian, you stop living what I might call a peaceful life, in a sense. Because as a non-Christian... Typically, you just do what you want, as far as other people will let you anyway. But when you become a Christian, a battle begins within you. It's described in Romans chapter 7, Galatians chapter 5. And I want to keep the commandments of God, but there's something in me that's telling me, you don't really have to do that. You know, a little... uh, bending of the rules just so you can please somebody or if you do this you'll really enjoy it you'll you'll get satisfaction temptations are great aren't they let's let's be honest none of us are immune and then of course there's the devil behind those sometimes the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom whom he may devour that's hard let's not de- deny it even though you can recognize a roaring lion when you see one uh, to fight with one is no joke but that's first peter chapter 5 but other times he's like an angel of light he's standing right here isn't he? his messengers can stand behind the pulpit so second corinthians 11 says and they speak sweet religious words but they're untrue. Deception. There's full faith on temptation, but then there's sweet deception. We've got to know the wiles of the devil so that we can overcome him. But those are the enemies. How on earth are you going to do that? The standard's so high, and yet the enemies are so strong, aren't they? Aren't they? We need the great immeasurably great power of God and we have it think of what Paul writes to the Philippians. he says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling that's a big command isn't it work it out but do it with fear and trembling lest you fail for God is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Ah, there's the confidence that I have then to, to work it out. In, in Hebrews chapter 13, sometimes we read this as our benediction. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ... The great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That's what's available to you. (coughs) Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. You've got Jude. And again, the benediction that we sometimes read there Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He's able. You're not able to keep yourself from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. (coughs) So then, do you know what enabled you to become a Christian? It was not your power. It was God's power. You know it wasn't you. You know you deserve nothing. You know that your desires were always fixed on worldly things. And you know it was your choice to to run away from God even now. I hope it's not true, but some of you young people, some of you older people, you're hearing what you know is the truth, but you're determining in your mind that you're not going to believe. It needs a great power of God. Rather like with Saul of Tarsus. He's become so angry with Christians. He's going to destroy Christians and if he can he's going to take Christ down from his throne. But it was God's mighty power, wasn't it? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that was the end of him. So... The second thing I want to see from Ephesians 1 here is that you need to know not only that God's power towards believers is immeasurably great, but you need to know it's as great as that power which raised and exalted Christ. So we ask the question, Paul, how immeasurably great is this power? Oh, he says, the the end of verse 19, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's how great it is. So first consider um, the resurrection and the exhortation of Christ. God, by his power, raised him from the dead. There was a the body of Jesus lying in the tomb, lifeless, cold, severely mutilated by the scourging, which was the most terrible thing which could kill a person. Nailed to the tree a spear mark in his side, a big stone rolled over the opening that the ladies thought were not going to be able to move it, and an armed guard posted to stop the disciples from robbing the tomb. And it looked like death and the evil one had him in his power. But then we read, the grave was not able... To hold him. Acts chapter 2 and verse 24. And then we read that in Hebrews chapter 2, we read that Jesus partook of our nature that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. What power? there was in our death because death is the wages of sin and the devil in that sense is right to accuse isn't he say to God you must punish that one and Jesus dies for the sins of his people but death cannot hold him because he has no sin and by the power of God he's raised from the dead and He's exalted to the right hand of God. So look at that then. God seats him at his right hand, the end of verse 20. He's taken bodily into the very presence of God. As Psalm 110 says, uh, he sits... At the right hand, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Surrounding are the myriads upon myriads of glorious angels of various ranks. Such glorious beings, but he doesn't take his place among them. Doesn't even take his place at their head. He rather has the place of privilege and power with the Father. And there he takes his seat and he alone and the whole heavenly host represented by the four living creatures, the 24 elders and the myriads of angels and so on, they all bow down and worship him. That is how high he's exalted. Far above any other power, whatever that power may be called. You'll notice in verse 21, again, words are multiplied, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. I think we find it hard to distinguish between those four things. Don't try to do it. Whatever you call these great powers, and perhaps it's a a reference to the magical powers that people thought were there. Uh, You have some of that in in Colossians. uh, Chapter 1, verse 16, the same sort of thing. Whatever, whatever power you can think of, however great, however wicked it is, far above every power that is named. So what Paul is saying is there's no need to fear anything. In Africa, many people fear being cursed. They fear something being put in the roof of their house that will bring um, bad luck or they're walking along a path and there's a headless chicken being slaughtered on the path and people are deadly afraid they're afraid of the the witch doctors they're they're there Uh, people dread and it appears for whatever reason many people succumb to such power but as believers we have no reason to fear anything whatsoever like that and this my friends in terms of Christ's glory will continue Forever, at the end of verse 21, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, our Lord is never going to be leaving his great throne of absolute authority. He is there forever and ever and ever. Now, only immeasurable power could exalt our Lord Jesus to that level. It has to be divine power because he's exalted to the very throne of God. Then will you consider why Paul uses this analogy of resurrection and exaltation? Why does he introduce that in terms of power? And there are three reasons. Of course, first of all, he's comparing. He's saying that the power of God in Christ's resurrection and exhortation is the very power that's used to make us become Christians. And that shows without a doubt that conversion is an amazingly divine transformation of a person. And so when, when you profess faith, when somebody professes faith, we expect to see a change of life, don't we? Because God is at work. That's what's called the new birth or regeneration. So there's a comparison between the two, but there's a closer connection than that. It's what we might call a typical, typological connection. Our conversion is actually... A resurrection <laughs> and an exhortation and chapter 2 of Ephesians says that you can see that uh, it says verse 6 of chapter 2 and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus what's true of Christ then in a spiritual way is true of us and then thirdly there's a causal relationship. We become Christians and we continue in our Christian life because Christ was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God. Paul talks in the end of Romans 4 that Christ was raised for our justification Imagine if he wasn't raised. There'd be no hope, would there? His death must be accomplished, accompanied by resurrection in order to show that his death really did accomplish our salvation. And then you remember, I think, on the day of Pentecost, Peter says that being exalted at the right hand of God, he has poured out this which you see and hear, the Holy Spirit, And so, unless he was raised and exalted, there will be no Pentecost, no pouring out of the Spirit, and no salvation. Because it is the divine power of the Spirit that works in us and brings us to faith in Christ. So I've, I've told you, and I say it to you again in verse 19, uh, Paul multiplies words. It's the immeasurable greatness of his power. Literally, it is the working or the exertion, the working of the might of his strength. Well, I know what strength is. Do you know what the might of strength is? seems to be saying the same thing. But it's simply to convince us how powerful It is. In other words, this power is not a tiny stream, but it's a flood, the likes of which we've seen in certain places recently. That flood that carries everything before it. So then, my friends, what are we going to say to this wonderful truth, this truth that we need to know That means we need to be absolutely assured of it with joy and confidence. First of all, it tells us how great our salvation is. You didn't save yourself. You owe it all to the Lord. His grace, yes, but his power. You can't save yourself. The preacher can't save you. The mightiest evangelist, Spurgeon or Whitfield, if they were here, they couldn't save you either. Faith only comes through the immeasurable power of God. So let me ask you, to what do you attribute your being a Christian? How did you become a Christian? What made you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? And like me, your brother is not. What made you different? What do you say? If you start to say, well, I studied the Bible and he didn't. You're already on the wrong track, aren't you? Well, he got involved in far more evil things than I did. You're on the wrong track. There's only one answer, isn't there? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. He made the difference. He is the one who gave me the interest to read the Bible. He is the one who stopped me from being so deeply involved in sin. And you give him all the credit, all the glory. And if you de- devalue the power of God, then you'll stop asking this question, why me? Isn't that what you ask about yourself? Lord, why me? There's so many others who just like me. Why did you choose me? And you don't know the answer, do you? And I don't know the answer, except we say, it's of the Lord. Why Paul? I mean, he was the great hater of Christ, the great persecutor. There was Brother Mohammed in Nairobi. I call him Brother because he became a Christian. But he always says, if the Lord can save me from my background, then the Lord can save anybody. Because it just boggles his mind. Why is he a Christian? And that should be you. There's no reason in yourself. If I'm allowed, perhaps my favourite verse of the Bible, it's in Romans 8 and verse 34. And Paul asks the question, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And the question in verse 34 is, who is to condemn? So let me ask you that question. Who can condemn you? Well, you ought to say nobody. Not even the devil. And then I ask you, on what basis do you say that? Because you've been faithful at church? Because you're baptized? Because you are better than others? And why, I, if I may say, I love this verse, it only talks about Christ. Look at then the rest of verse 34. It's actually put as a question, isn't it? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I think we can put it as a question. Isn't that so? Why is there no condemnation to me? Anything that I've done, nothing at all. It's because Christ died, Christ rose from the dead, Christ is exalted at the right hand of God, and Christ intercedes for me. That's the beginning and the end as far as all that's absolutely vital. This should also give you assurance for your Christian life. Because as I said, the standards are great and the enemies are many and powerful. And we need to pray for one another We need to exhort one another. You need to pray for yourself. Oh, that you might know the immeasurable great power that's at work in you if you're a Christian. It's greater than any other power in the universe. What can prevent you from receiving the hope that you have What can take you away from being loved by God so that you're his prized possession? Christ is in absolute control. That's how powerful he is. Every enemy is being put under his feet. And far from making us careless and lazy, this truth will energise you. When you know it, will strengthen you You'll say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because now you're sure of the strength that he can give you. And by that, you can do all he requires until he finally brings you into the eternal glory. Glory.